Hi, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Charting Queer Health, a podcast at the intersection of queer culture, healthcare, and research. On behalf of Howard Brown Health in Chicago, as always, I'm your host, Matt. I'm a cis white gay man and a Chicago resident, but most importantly, I have the incredible opportunity to sit down with various experts across our organization and across our community to learn from their expertise, amplify their stories and voices, and advance the conversation surrounding queer healthcare. Joining us today is Tracy Bame. Tracy, thank you so much for coming. It's an honor. Would you mind um, introducing yourself? Uh, what you do, and your pronouns, please. Sure. Uh, Tracy Bame, she, her pronouns. Um, I'm born and raised in Chicago, and I graduated college in 1984, returned home, and within a month started work at a gay newspaper called Gay Life Newspaper, published by Chuck Redslow, and a year later co-founded Windy City Times. So I've been covering and part of the LGBT community here since 1984. Gotcha. So you've been in and around the scene for a while. Um, That name, Chuck Redslow sounds familiar can you run me through he is real quick because he's his name has popped up in various other episodes and i just want to give some context sure chuck was a true entrepreneur he started the nation's first known leather bar in the late 1950s a photo studio featuring a lot of buff men mostly gay um in the 1950s later founded man's country bathhouse the eagle bar dozens of other businesses he bought gay life newspaper um in the around 1980 And um, he also was the co-founder of International Mr. Leather and a a whole lot of other things. He was involved in democratic politics. Uh, Owen Keenan and I wrote a biography of him before he passed away called Leatherman, The Legend of Chuck Renslow. I'm going to have to read that. I'm always looking for new books. Um, And that's actually uh, perfect timing because somehow the last episode we recorded, um, I think, Oh, actually, it aired today, um, was with uh, Mr. Chicago Leather 2014, Miguel Torres, and we talked about um, kind of the leather community, and his name popped up, but we didn't get to dive into who he was, so I just wanted that little primer. But the the main focus for today uh, that we're talking about is pride, which is uh, a big topic, and on the nose might seem like something that's kind of um, obvious, or like there's not a ton to dive into, um, but I want this to be... Uh, like we were talking before I started recording, um, I want this to be a Pride 101 for people that are either new to the community and aren't sure what uh, where our roots lie, um, for you know allies who aren't really sure why it's necessary. I always think of, I moved here um, a year ago, exactly, and actually, yeah, a year ago, exactly today, that's weird, um, from Southwest Michigan, so very small, very religious, um, and the attitude surrounding like pride and queer communities was always like, well, it's fine. Just don't, why do you need to like be all in the street like that and and Mm -hmm. shove it down our throat and stuff. And so people never really understood uh, why it was necessary. So when I was conceiving of this episode, I was like, I, you know, I kind of want this to be that resource where people are like, why, why is this necessary? So uh, that's why we're so lucky to have you because you are really uniquely positioned to kind of uh, educate us all on that. So Let's um, rewind back to the origins of Pride. So um, people have probably heard the saying before Pride started as a riot. Can you give us, not a reader's digest, but uh, something like that of, of the origins of Pride and, and where this all comes from? Yeah, you know, Pride is thought to start really with the Stonewall riots in 1969 in New York City, Stonewall being a gay bar that had been harassed by police, like many bars across the country, including in Chicago. But really the origins of the community fighting back against the institutions of society goes back decades prior to that. In Chicago in 1924, a postal worker named Henry Gerber had started a 
gay organization, the first known one in the United States. They published a couple newsletters that, and then they were shut down by the police. His organization kind of through the rumor mills was heard about across the country and the, a man named Harry Hay in Los Angeles started a gay organization called the Mattachine Society in the early 50s, having heard of Henry Gerber's work. And all of those organizations kind of fed into the movement. Some of the people wanted to kind of go along and fit in and, and change things from inside. And other people wanted to protest from the outside. We needed both. We needed both throughout our community's history. So in the 1960s, there were started to be protests in the streets in front of the White House, in front of the Philadelphia um, in front of the Liberty Bell, all sorts of places. Uh, there were in Compton, there were protests uh, in San Francisco, um, and even in, in Chicago um, in the 1960, during the 1968 Democratic Convention. And during that whole year, gay people were talking about ways to, to fight back. So that push pull within the movement existed in 1969 when the police raided the Stonewall Bar and um, all sorts of genderqueer people uh, started to fight back against that harassment. And a year later, Los Angeles, Chicago, New York City all celebrated, a you know, kind of in commemoration of that, um, there were marches. And in Chicago, it started at Newberry uh, downtown um, in front of the Newberry Library at, at Haymarket. And uh, we actually had the first kind of what might later would be called a pride parade because we happened to have ours on a Saturday and the other two were on the next day. But um, eventually they morphed into what was considered a pride parade. But these were really demonstrations early on and often were followed by rallies for Chicago. For many years, there was a post-parade rally in Lincoln Park that had speeches by politicians and activists. So it's, it's morphed into much more of a celebration, but um, its origins were very much in protest. Gotcha. That makes a lot of sense uh, in that it, the the parade and, and the rallies kind of started as as um, a call to action surrounding Stonewall. When you say that there were you know demonstrations and protests even preceding Stonewall, um, what did those look like? Were they mostly peaceful? Uh, was was there um, repercussions uh, from law enforcement for that? Um, were they like sanctioned? I know. You know the the first real um, moment of of protest that I can remember in my adult life, unfortunately, or maybe fortunately, I guess depending on how you consider it, um, was uh, last May after George Floyd and things like that. That you know that was the first time I remember seeing like protests on TV, and obviously that. Um, there was a big conversation surrounding how to protest and whether it's um, you know how to do those things. Were these early protests? Um, on par at all with that, or, or, or what did they look like? Well, the police were never friends of the community uh, in that era, and some of the protests took form of uh, pickets in in Philadelphia, Los Angeles, San Francisco. In Chicago, took the form of fighting back in, in the courts against a, a raid on the Trip Bar in 1968. There were also um, other high-profile arrests of, of folks in gay bars in Chicago in that era. Um, the most of the the visible protests that we have uh, visual memory from, which means photographs, happened in uh, Washington D.C. and Philadelphia. Kay Tobin Lohusen, who was with Barbara Giddings, one of the movement's pioneers, documented a lot of that in her photos. And I have a book uh, called "Gay Pioneer: A Profile of Barbara Giddings" that I worked on with her widow. Um, those protests were interesting because, again, it was this push pull 
they they weren't sanctioned in any formal way, but they very much were pickets. So they were visual, you know, like they had the they had the placards. They were very formal dressed. So women had to wear dresses, men had to wear suits. They were trying to kind of show the normalization of the community, but there were many people who wanted there to be, you know, the full diversity. But in pre-1969 movement, um, the, those pickets were much more formal with, with a few exceptions um, in trying to really fight against all the stereotypes. I mean, we're talking about a society where very few people, probably only a couple hundred across the entire country were willing to use their real names and images on TV shows or in Life Magazine, Time Magazine, mm -hmm. et cetera. There was just a tiny, tiny movement. And the, the loudest voices among those were to fit in, uh, to show that we were just like everybody else. Um, and so they were very impactful and they were these early seeds of change that then inspired people who saw them there was an, a, a talk show called The David Susskind Show in early 1970s where Barbara Giddings and a few other women appeared and talked about being lesbian on camera with their names. Mm -hmm. And this was groundbreaking for the next generation who saw them on TV. They don't even know how many tens of thousands, if not millions of people they inspired, whether they were queer or they were families of queer people, to see the normalization of the community. So both sides were needed. You needed that kind of radical edge to push the limits, and you needed people who were willing uh, to go on TV and, and represent kind of the normalization of the community. Yeah. It's interesting that you use that phrase that the, the push-pull was still present very early on and is still present now um, because you have people that argue that pride should be uh, extremely family-friendly and, and maybe a bit more corporatized um, because representation is representation, which there's maybe, and we'll get into that a little bit later on the episode, but um, it's interesting to see that that was still, uh, or, or was the case um, back then. Um, and, and, and so you would say that the, you said it was much more formal pre-Stonewall demonstrations were? like Most of them. There were definitely some pickets that were more yeah. radical, but the ones that we that have survived image-wise and that we talk a lot about are ones in front of, um, you know, the Pentagon and um, and also at, in Philadelphia, there was, they were these annual Philadelphia reminders that very much fed into the, the later Stonewall and post Stonewall celebrations. There was a lot of crossover of the people mm -hmm. and the tactics. Gotcha. And it, yeah, it's interesting to me that, that this, um, I don't know if impulse is the right word, but, um, tactic that the queer community has used of like, we're going to do everything like the straight community that we want to accept us, but we're going to be gay and try and try to, you know blend in so to speak the the queer community has a lot of different facets obviously there's a lot of letters in the acronym i i feel like and maybe this is misplaced but a lot of um queer representation um focuses on cis gay men um especially during pride month maybe that's just because i am a cis gay man and i see and notice rep that type of representation more um, what other identities um, do we have to thank for the rights and liberties we have today as a queer community going back to those original protests because I think there's a lot of people um, and especially the cis gay man community that probably aren't aware of, of who we have to thank for this yeah I mean going back hundreds of years really the people who were over policed were the gender non-conforming folks of any kind and also those who were not in the privileged classes um, and, and in the privileged race of, of white people being uh, able to do things undercover and behind the scenes in ways that uh, people of color, queer people, people not of the upper class were able to do. So when you look at the vice raids in the early 1900s, a lot of them targeted 
um, the marginalized people of our community. Um, and so when you bring it more forward, uh, absolutely that there's been a bifurcation really of, I would say class is probably the biggest divider because certainly the upper class had a lot of queer people in it and they were able to have their house parties or their private enclaves or their you know, beach houses in Michigan where they were able to celebrate themselves and other people didn't had, had their celebrations more in public spaces and were more vulnerable to police raids and, and things like that. Um, so I do think the movement, you know, I, I like to say there really isn't a gay community. We come together at moments in time around crises or around celebration, but for the most part, we live our lives very separately. And the Stonewall riots um, very much are seen as something that came out of kind of genderqueer folks. So um, a Butch Dyke, uh, trans woman of color like Sylvia Rivera and Marsha P. Johnson, uh, Stormy, uh, they, these were people that really almost had nothing to lose, right? They fought back in ways that people with privilege don't often have the courage to do because they do have something to lose. They do have family who might write them off or, or cut them off. So I do think that we owe a great debt of dad gratitude to the people who were willing to risk their lives and their careers. Even someone who was a white cisgender man like Frank Kameny or a white cisgender lesbian like Barbara Giddings, they gave up careers to do the movement work. In the late 1950s, they very consciously moved into movement work and uh, Frank Kameny lost uh, an opportunity to be a government employee. He was, you know, he was not an activist, but he was forced to be one and he stayed in that lane as opposed to trying to, to fit in and take a mainstream job. 98, 99% of our community uh, blends in, fits in, and doesn't fight back. So that small percentage that over the course of history has fought back, we hold great debt of gratitude. It's my, as minor as losing financial security, meaning taking jobs and working in bars or wherever it might've been to, in order to live true lives or risking their lives and, and in some cases dying for the movement. Yeah, that that makes sense. And there's a couple of things I want to touch on but um yeah it, it, it when you phrase it that way it's so natural that like you know the people that have a lot to lose obviously aren't going to stick their necks out in order to advance the movement so we really do owe everything to people that like you said had nothing to lose and, and pushed the envelope because it was you know mm -hmm. the only option um and I, actually that's why the howard brown's namesake is howard brown because um, howard brown was a doctor the new york city health commissioner i think um, started his career closeted and then had the courage to come out, um, which kind of changed the perception of um, queer people in high-ranking offices and things, um, for those of you listening that didn't know the origins of the name. You also mentioned uh, vacation homes in Michigan. Uh, I'm from Michigan, so I'm just curious how, uh, you know, I, I went to Sagatuck for uh, Memorial Day. How long has that been a thing? Has that always, like... Uh, you know, I don't know. I know that there are recorded um, in my book, Out and Proud in Chicago, we talk about some of the artist colonies and other enclaves um, in the early 1900s where people would go to Indiana Beach, uh, yeah. Michigan City, uh, Southwest yeah. Michigan, where they would have uh, kind of a separate lives. Um, and, you know, in a pre-internet world, in a pre-phones on your camera world, there was a way to be private in other spaces when you came back to Chicago to live in a different life. So people lived many parallel lives. And I know that places within a short driving distance of Chicago were those kind of places for artists and, and other kinds of people that were 
you know, wanting to live more openly outside of the norms of Chicago. Interesting. So yeah, if you're, if you're listening and like me, you went to the dunes for Memorial day, there's a, a whole legacy of, of queer escapism that's uh, built into that. Um, and that also reminded me of the other thing that I was going to comment on, um, was the idea of representation. We, we talk about it pretty, um, I don't know if I would use the word flippantly, but um, at least I don't put a, thought, a lot of thought into what it's uh, what representation look like looks like now and what it did uh, in the 1900s, even 1940s, 1950s. There wasn't an internet to go and Google like, how common is it that I'm gay? You know, am I alone in the world? Is there am I an outlier? And so I feel like that sense of isolation um, and not belonging was um, probably a lot a lot higher, a lot you know stronger. Uh, when you weren't able to realize that there was other people like you across the country. And so people going on news shows and talking about what it's like to be gay or lesbian or anything um, probably had a, a, a great deal of impact, I would imagine. Yeah, and and Barbara Giddings is a good example of that. So she went to Northwestern University. She wasn't from Chicago, but she went to Northwestern, dropped out after a year because she had gone to the, the library and found some information about homosexuality. Now, almost everything about homosexuality written down back then was pretty horrible. The Kinsey Institute reports were an exception where it showed that this wasn't an aberration. This was actually part of a scale of human sexuality and gender identity. So Barbara Giddings, in her career, tried to change those institutions, including the American Library Association and how they dealt with uh, LGBTQ books. Um, one of her, uh, she also changed the American Psychiatric Association, her and Frank Kameny. So she was looking at the large-scale institutions where people would find kernels of who they were or they would be institutionalized because of the APA diagnosis of homosexuality as an illness. So that kind of scale of change was massive. And the American Library Association now is, of course, one of the biggest allies of the movement because information is power. And if all the information shows that you are should be medicalized, institutionalized, cured, um, that's what you think. And so... I always say that the internalized homophobia we bring to the movement is actually far more damaging than the external homophobia. Sarah Shulman's mm -hmm. Ties That Bind book talks immensely about familial homophobia, but there's also this internal homophobia that we're all constantly fighting. And information is the only way to counter that, to show that there were LGBTQ people throughout history of all kinds, um, gives you hope that you are not alone. So that being alone feeling still exists shockingly today, even with the internet, because of bad information and because we're still not treating this as just a part of society when people are growing up and learning in schools. In fact, there's this huge pushback to remove progress based on, um, you know, don't say gay and other types of bills. And now teachers are, in many places, are terrified of just teaching teaching what everything is, that all these things are part of society. Mm -hmm. So I'm really worried, um, you know, right now we still have the internet to counter that but we still have to do a, a huge lift to make sure that that information is available free and accessible for the next generations. Yeah, you kind of segued perfectly into my next thought. Um, there's a lot of political discourse around the country. Um, the Don't Say Gay bill in Florida comes to mind and the um, legislation in Texas surrounding trans kids. Um, it, it's scary for a lot of reasons, obviously. Um, Illinois is fortunately generally pretty you know, progressive and we can safely assume such hope that there won't be legislation like that here. Um, but it begs the question as 
you said the, the queer community kind of lives our lives separately, but we come together in times of crisis. How can we come together in times of crisis like this when there's legislation across the country that's threatening us and the you know, pending um, overturning of Roe v. Wade that could ultimately end up threatening our rights as well? Um, it's easy to feel a little hopeless, um, and we don't have to get too political uh um, and stray away from the topic, but I do want to hear your thoughts, um, especially in, in uh, Pride Month. How do, how, what, do we, what do we do? Well, first I would say Roe v. Wade itself affects the LGBTQ community. There are people in our community who are affected by that law directly. And then, yes, the rights that Roe v. Wade come, descends from, the right to privacy, also affect other rights the LGBTQ community could lose, including marriage equality. Um, it is a terrifying time. And, and one of the things that's different is that LGBTQ people are coming out much younger in public ways than my generation and, and older. Um, my generation often came out in college or after when there was an independence from family. And now a lot of the, the gender nonconforming youth are expressing in five and six and seven years old. Um, and uh, sexual orientation starts to... to be discovered in the 10, 11, 12, 13 year olds. And that was always the case, but now it's the case that families are more supportive or at least society in general, there are ways to find support if you're those ages, but you're still vulnerable to family and to institutions at that point in your life. So I think that that's what's more terrifying than the, than the past kind of pushback against us is that we have a far more vulnerable age population um, mm. to those things. You know, you mentioned that Illinois seems like a safe haven, but it, it actually is still pretty tenuous. Um, one of the, several of the candidates for governor are very anti-gay and anti-choice. Um, one has a commercial out that just came out, Sullivan, who's very specifically saying he will roll back um, that, that the kind of progressive gay work. And certainly he's anti-choice um, for, for uh, people who get pregnant. So we do have, um, we've and we've had, decades where Illinois has been run by a, a far more conservative element. So elections, elections are critical. They are not the only thing. We cannot rely on any one thing to save us, including politicians, but they are certainly part of that pie that we absolutely have to look and educate ourselves about those candidates. And especially if we're from states where there are critical elections for secretaries of state, governor, state house races, school board races, you name it. Um, all of us have family and friends throughout the country who could use support in their battles. Um, if, if one of the houses of Congress is lost, um, we'll have the state of paralysis that Obama operated in his last uh, set of years in office. And uh, the 2024 presidential election in particular is going to be pretty scary because of gerrymandering and and voter suppression and the Supreme Court that we have in place that's not going to protect us. Um, the Supreme Court is on a on a right word jerk back decades, um, and it's uh, terrifying to think um, they were the ones that were the last bastion of hope for our movement when when getting rid of sodomy laws and, and marriage equality, et cetera. And now that arc of the moral universe is bending and mm. almost breaking backwards. Um, so it is very scary times. And I think it's most scary for the most vulnerable among our community. So supporting institutions like Howard Brown, Center and Halstead, AIDS Foundation of Chicago, Brave Space Alliance, et cetera, is critical for our community at the same time we pay attention to the elections. That 
you just dropped a ton of information and it was all so excellently put. So, so thank you for that. Um, it's, it is an ongoing battle. I mean, uh, you know, like you said, we can, can't depend on just one thing, uh, mm-hmm. to, to save our community or to put our community, um, at peace. So, um, I guess it's encouraging in a way that like, you know, no matter the successes or, or, or failures there, the road is still keeps going and it, the, the battle keeps going. So it's, it's always something that we're going to be working at. Uh, at least it seems like transferring angles a little bit here. Um, I'd love to hear your thoughts on the no King at pride discourse, which, um, the episode that just aired today uh, about leather, we, we kind of talked about it a little bit, but I'd like to hear, um, your thoughts because we talked about that a little bit earlier in the episode about the, um, kind of a push and pull that the queer community has of trying to fit in and making things palatable, but also staying true to our roots and being authentic and expressing who we are. Um, and, and I know for me personally, I've seen the no King get pride for some reason it comes up every year. Um, people on Twitter or TikTok talking about it. Um, I want to hear your take about it. Um, well, when I started in 1984 at Gay Life newspaper, this was also discussed. Um, <laughs> oh, <laughs> no, decades. Kink, not, it wasn't phrased no kink at pride, but the leather community and the trans community too. So you had, you know, drag queens and transgender people in prides forever. And there was a push against them. And I think the interesting part now is there's not, well, there is actually a pushback in the mainstream about this, like in Texas, some legislators trying to make a law about drag Drag queens. queens. I have that on my list actually, yeah. (laughs) Um, Oh my God. Um, Here's the thing, this has always been the case. And I always laugh it off because the straight community does not have to defend drunks at St. Patrick's Day Parade, lewd guys grabbing women. You know, like there are horrible things that happen at parades everywhere. Have you ever been to a spring break town? Yeah, spring like, break. Give me a break. Remember the old, uh, MTV. maybe you don't, but the videos where women would oh, wear yeah. their breasts. Wet t-shirt contests. Wet t-shirt contests. Yeah. But also there were like this whole industry of videos of women bearing their breasts, right? And straight people don't have to say, well, I don't support that. You know, that's mm-hmm. kind of that's kind of out there. So I don't ever feel like our community should have to justify who's in the parade or not. And um, what's interesting is the oftentimes the mainstream media, at least in the past, would focus on the sal- most salacious aspects of pride. When 95% of pride has always been pretty boring, people just marching with banners and, you know, not boring, but just there's no normal, but everyday people, mm-hmm. you know, parents it used to be teachers would wear brown bags sometimes in parade because they didn't want to lose their jobs. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the, like there was always a vast diversity and the media would often sensationalize and focus on one aspect and that's on them, you know, the parade. Yeah. So I, I know there are people that are grown ups today that their parents took them to pride in the eighties, nineties and early two thousands. And those kids were impacted by the vast diversity. Yes, there's going to be crazy salaciousness, but look at superhero movies with their exaggerated human exoskeletons and right. and crotch areas, right? I mean, come on, give me a Marvel movie and tell that's not influencing a young kid mm-hmm. with all that exaggerated femininity or masculinity that happens. And, it, and even if, other than appearance-wise, just like the roles that they're told to play in society. Right, right. Like, yeah, so to me, there's a lot of quote-unquote kink that is not seen as that way when it's in a superhero movie or if it's in a a mainstream uh, you know parade it's not queer I just try not to focus on it because uh you know for my career we've covered it all 
you know, the leather to the lace to everything in between is part of our movement. And in the 1980s, what I saw was that the leather community came together to support AIDS, AIDS causes before a lot of other people did. They're a community because it's, it was a pocket of the community had a tremendous, it, it, AIDS impacted that community at tremendous levels. The same with the dance community. Whenever you have a smaller niche within a larger community, they can be profoundly impacted by those kinds of things. And they were, and they responded with grace and with money. And our movement, again, owes debts of gratitude to the transgender and drag queen performers at Bataan and other places that raised money for individuals impacted by HIV AIDS or cancer or other causes, as well as the institutions. Howard Brown was built on the backs of leathermen and, and drag queens and trans people, just as all of our institutions were. So we cannot throw any part of our community under the bus just because some mainstream person thinks that that's um, outside the norms and shouldn't be in front of kids. Kids need to see the true diversity in order for them, them to fit in to society when they grow up preach you put that so well and i i love that point about um marvel because it's like you you have somebody in leather walking down the street in a pride parade and it's offensive but then you put that same person uh, in a batman movie and call her Catwoman, and suddenly it's a blockbuster film and everybody needs to take their kids to see it so <laughs> and like they weren't shy in like the various batman movies either about making Catwoman like overtly sexual so um that's an excellent point and i just like to laugh about that and, and uh, I have to process all my thoughts because uh, you touched on a lot of things. And that has been our episode about all things Pride. If you are interested in any resources uh, regarding Howard Brown that we talked about on the episode, you can go to www.howardbrown.org for more information. Thanks for listening.